Welcome back to the GGWP podcast. This episode is proudly sponsored by the 2022 Paraplegic Paralegal Pleasure Party for Philanthropists and PhDs. A night of glitz, glamour, and wheels featuring six different meal options, an open bar, and the shittiest cha-cha slide you've ever seen attempted. Lateral movement really is a tough one for those sitters. Oh well, what are you going to do? So, with that being said, Let's get into the itinerary, for lack of a better term. So today, we're going to be talking about some pretty pretty Switch-heavy stuff, pretty Nintendo-heavy stuff. Uh, partly because there's a lot of different things to talk about, and partly because I just got a Nintendo 64 controller for the Switch, right? I guess late 2021, they started reproducing them. Or maybe those were just when the initial reviewers got them and they weren't actually available until closer 2022. Regardless, if you didn't know, in tandem with Nintendo's online expansion pack service, which is a subscription model that lets you play and emulate games from Sega Genesis, Nintendo 64, uh, Super Nintendo, NES, right? They've also remanufactured the original controllers. Maybe not for every single one, but I'm 95% positive that they do make the controllers for the Nintendo as well as 64, excuse me, as well as the Genesis, the SNES, and the NES. So, if you have any interest in any of that, if one of those means something to you particularly, I highly recommend it. Now, the plot twist is that in my opinion... The Nintendo 64 Bluetooth controller, made by Nintendo, not some third-party situation, was harder to get than a Founder's Edition RTX 3080. For those that don't watch my other videos, didn't know about it, I got a Founder's Edition 3080 at MSRP, didn't pay a dime over, from BestBuy.com like two weeks after it came out. Right, Because I knew it was hard to get. I knew bots and scalpers were a thing. So I improvised, adapted, and came. Right? Overcame, camed. I did all the fucking coming, dude. I got that 3080 fresh off the press for... I can't remember if it was $4.99 or $5.99. But yeah, so scalping situations and bot situations don't really phase me. If I wanted a PS5 or a Xbox Series X when they came out, I would have gotten one, right? But I didn't. I had a brand new 3080. Why do I care about that shit? So with that being said, with Nintendo, it proved to be even tougher. And I will say I didn't put the kind of effort and attention into setting myself up to get one of these controllers the same way I did with the 3080s. Like, I knew those were coming out months in advance. I was counting down the time when they initially was sold out because of all the bots. I strategized, came up with a plan, and was able to execute it, right? With the Nintendo 64 controller, it was more like I saw that they were a thing. I was super interested. It said out of stock. I said, damn. Oh, well. I'm not going to go looking for it. I'll just, you know, try again. 
So a couple weeks later, I'm just sitting there wondering to myself, hey, I wonder if they got any more of those in stock. I go check. They did not, right? But through Googling it, I see that just a couple of days ago, someone had posted an article talking about how they're in stock right now. I guess the article was saying that they were coming into stock like Sunday. It was like Wednesday when I was looking at it. So unsurprisingly, they did run out of stock pretty quickly, right? But unlike many of the next-gen consoles in the 3080s and stuff, the scalping market wasn't ridiculous. So to break it down, at MSRP from Nintendo's website, I believe that the Nintendo 64 controller is $50. I'm not familiar with the pricing on the Sega Genesis or any of the other ones, but the Nintendo 64 is $50, right? When I look on Amazon for the Nintendo 64 controller, I notice a couple of somewhat alarming things, right? I've I've been an Amazon seller for a long time. I've worked with the business in many different ways to this day. So I have specific softwares and tools that will let me see price history and things like that on Amazon, even from a consumer standpoint. And I could see that a lot of these controllers that were being so- sold on Amazon were one not prime fulfilled, right? Which means that there's no guarantee that person actually has it. Under the little buy now or add to cart button, you can see when it says sold and shipped by Amazon or sold by this person shipped by Amazon. That's typically where you get your prime shipping, right? Well, these were saying like sold and shipped by CryX, YZ, etc., right? Which to me is a red flag that it's some made up random Chinese bullshit. But even if it's not, there's no guarantee that person has it. When Amazon is shipping and fulfilling something, they will not let that listing be available for purchases unless they have stock on hand, right? But when you're using Amazon as a platform and shipping it yourself, similar to eBay, it's a whole nother ball game, right? That it'll be too late. Like, you could probably get your money back and go through the proper channels, but at that point, you're going to be tied up in this whole situation for, like, a couple of weeks, and you're going to be sending money and waiting for it to come back. You're not going to have your controller. It's going to be a really bad situation. So with all that being said, I could see that the people who were selling them on Amazon, if they ever had any of them to begin with, uh, the price, the lowest they were going for was about 135 and the highest they were going for was actually over $400, which is absurd, right? So with all that being said, I checked eBay because, you know, I knew that if they're only restocking every other month or so, every couple of months, so the more time that has passed up until that 50% point, they're going to get more and more expensive because they're going to get more and more scarce, right? Like, let's say all the scalpers bought a 1,000 on the 1st of July, right? It's not going to restock until the 1st of September. So the most expensive point to look at the third-party reselling market for this product should be like the 1st of August, right? Because you've kind of dwindled down the supply and increased the scarcity from the initial restock, and you still have a significant amount of time until the next restock, right? So it really plays to that psychological factor of, okay, well, I want it now. I don't want to wait another month. That's when your price is going to get crazy. 
So understanding all of these different moving pieces and being a huge fan of the Nintendo 64, loving the games to this day and loving the idea of getting to get an updated Nintendo 64 controller. I found one on eBay for 85 bucks, right? So is it marked up? Yeah. Is it worth 85 bucks to me? Absolutely. And that's that's all that counts. That's why I don't harbor hatred in my heart where I'm not mad at, like, scalpers and resellers and stuff. Because at the end of the day, anytime you buy something, it's only worth what you're willing to spend for it. And it's stupid to get mad at people for setting their own price, because they set those prices because people will buy it. Like, it is what it is. Something's only worth what you're willing to pay for it. And that's just how I see it. So, I absolutely love the Nintendo 64 controller. Getting that thing out of the box was great. My only regret is that they're only available in gray. You know, originally you you had the clear ones that were like clear green plastic or purple. You had solid yellow ones and green ones. All kinds of color. And who knows, maybe they'll bring that back at some point. But as of now, they're all gray. Uh, The feel of the controller, the build quality is great. The buttons do feel updated. Right? Maybe the switches that comprise the shoulder buttons and things like that. I have no doubt it's running a different PCB and board. Uh, But the amount of authenticity to it is kind of staggering. Right? Because it's not like they reinvented the entire thing. They never said they were going to do that. So for me, it was a big question. You know, there's no way in hell they're going to create a new product with the exact same technology in place that has been so greatly surpassed, right? And I don't think they did, but I think they did a little compromising. For example, the analog stick is basically working off of gears made of teeth, right? I guess in a sense they all are, but this is still a much more elementary version of it, right? It's way more layman's and approachable. If you were to break it down and compare like a DualShock 4 analog stick versus a Nintendo 64 analog stick, it would pretty much look like comparing a nice clock versus like a, a middle school kid science project that's a potato clock with random wires. Like it works, but it's a clearly more primitive version. But... They can do that because they invented the analog stick, right? Nintendo 64 controllers get a lot of hate from a lot of people who never grew up using them because they seem unintuitive, right? But that's largely due to the fact that you're used to experiencing games in 3D environments that have controllers for 3D environments that use analog sticks to move throughout those environments, All of those things were brand new and invented by Nintendo. The analog stick did not exist. 3D gaming, right, did not exist. So when you're playing Super Mario 64, Banjo and Kazooie, and you're using the Nintendo 64 hardware, you know, the fact that that was genuinely the origin of all of these different prolific things at the same time, is really a technical marvel, and it's astounding, right? The analog stick does feel a little bit stiffer, but that might just be because the ones I was using 20 years ago were also older, right? Like, I've I've purchased many pre-owned 
controllers. And I've used plenty of friends. I had a bunch of my own. But I never unboxed a Nintendo 64 controller with the original hardware, right? So maybe it's always been that stiff. Maybe it hasn't. I'm just glad that they didn't child it up by improving the design, right? Anyone who's played Mario Party knows exactly what I'm talking about. They actually had a disclaimer on the game that you should be very careful and avoid using the center of your palm to rotate the stick as quickly as you can because it's ribbed with hard plastic and you will literally burn a blister into the center of your palm within a single game of Mario Party, right? Like you do that for 30 or 40 seconds, two or three different times, and you're going to have a giant blister in the middle of your palm. God. What a time to be alive. I'm so glad I lived long enough to see this come full circle and get it back. And that that reminds me that that's a really awesome experience for me personally. Like I've always a little background, right? I bought my switch several months ago and I primarily intended the way I the way I justified spending the money, right? The purchase was for me, I knew that I had like 11 hours of traveling coming up. I had like an hour long flight and then like two hour layover and then like a seven hour connecting flight and then like an hour Uber ride to the hotel. I had a shitload of traveling to do and I had terrible seats and everything about this sucked. I did not want to do it, but it was something for work. So I was going to do it. I figured, you know, if I can spend $300, I think that's what it was, on a Nintendo Switch and be thoroughly entertained for at least like seven of those hours, that's absolutely worth my money. Like, I have spent way more money, well, maybe not, because I'm pretty frugal, right? But I've spent comparable amounts of money for way less benefit, right? Like, if you go to a casino, I'm not trying to hit it big. I'm just trying to have a good time, get some free drinks. So in my mind, I'm paying for the entertainment. But regardless, you pay for it pretty quickly, right? You can rack up $100 and lose $100 in chips in like 30 minutes, especially if you're depending on what you're doing, right? So that's why I bought the Switch. And the main thing I was looking forward to about it is getting my hands on these Nintendo games, right? Nintendo 64 games, which was a game changer for me when I saw about the online service. That's what really motivated me to buy it because I've been emulating them on my computer for the longest and it works, right? But it's not as smooth and polished and as an enjoyable of an experience for me as it would have been to run on Nintendo hardware, which is where the Switch comes in. So the reason I explained all of the origin about playing the Switch is because a thing for me is I've been playing in handheld mode the vast majority of the time I've spent on the console, right? But as of recently, through talking with Roger about why he doesn't like to play his Switch, I decided to start using it in dock mode, hooked up to my computer monitor. So the experience I've been having as of the past few days is literally... 20 plus years into the future, sitting down at my monitor, at my desk, in my chair, turning on my Nintendo console, 
picking up my wireless Bluetooth brand new Nintendo 64 controller and playing some of my favorite games ever the way the good Lord intended on that weird little Triceratops pitchfork controller. It's been a real experience. And I'm sure some people could, you know, imagine that. And they might feel similarly to me where it's really exciting. And it's like, man, that sounds nice. Some people were probably like, okay, boomer, weird. I'm going to go, I'm going to go play fork knife. And, uh, I don't know, shoot some, shoot some cartoon come on anime girls or something, whatever the fuck it is you guys do weirdos. But the point is, it's a damn good experience. I love this controller. I have nothing negative to say about it. And something really stupid that was not lost on me that I really appreciate on top of everything else is that the Switch recognizes that it's not just a Joy-Con. It's not a third-party controller. It is a Nintendo 64 controller. The little graphics from connecting to your Switch has a Nintendo 64 controller with the color-coordinated buttons and everything. When you're playing games in the emulators, you can see in the corner by your profile picture that you're using that controller. It feels like a real power move, to be honest. The 2021 Bluetooth wireless Nintendo 64 for Switch controller is the Tesla Model X of video game controllers. And I will not hear otherwise. The crazy part to me was the muscle memory really kicked in playing those old games, right? And I'll get into what I was playing and how it went here in a couple of minutes. But it's like, let's use Ocarina of Time as an example, because it's probably my favorite game that's ever been created or ever will. And I played through it dozens, if not hundreds of times, 100% over the years. So I, when I first got a gaming PC, right, I was excited to have access to those games. I don't even know if the switch was out. If it was, it was a very new thing. They definitely didn't have the online service up and running. I, I haven't had a, or my Wii stopped working like 10 years ago. I just used it as a big ass coaster, which I kind of regret now. I wish I took better care of it. But growing up, everyone always said technology doesn't become vintage or antique. It becomes obsolete. So there's no point in keeping it. Well, you guys really fucked up with that train of reasoning. But anywho, playing Ocarina of Time on a PC for me was kind of a dog shit experience, right? Like, I just don't feel like the game responds well to WASD input. Um, while you can roundabout ways fight with the emulator and get your key binding exactly how you want it, it's still not the most intuitive. It feels clunky. It's doable, but it really takes the, the shine and the polish away from the game, in my opinion, right? Pretty recently, actually, I got to the next step up. I've found my old Xbox One controller that's wired like some weird third-party bullshit, plugged into my PC, and started using that to play some of these old games and platformers. I think it was like the Crash Trilogy, the Reignited Trilogy that got me into it. And I was like, okay, well, now that I'm used to using a controller again, and it seems to be going pretty smoothly, and I'm, I'm enjoying it, let me retry some of those old games. And it was great. 
I was in the process of 100%ing Banjo-Kazooie on my PC using that controller, and it was fantastic, right? So I had very positive feelings about playing these old games again and playing this genre of game being collectathons platformers. And we'll get to that a little bit more, too. Once I sat down with the Nintendo 64 controller in hand, playing the Nintendo 64 games on my monitor, that took me to the peak. That was the upper echelon gaming moment, right? The muscle memory kicked in, and like switching camera angles with the C buttons and everything just felt so good. To me, the funniest fucking thing in the world is that on Ocarina of Time, when you load it up, the game will give you a pop-up saying, hey, press down on the C-pad in your suspend menu to see your controller bindings, right? You do that, and all it tells you is where your home button is on the top of the controller. It says nothing about A, B, C buttons, start, any of that. But it really doesn't need to, because when you're playing Ocarina of Time, you can see all of those buttons on the screen. Like, it shows you your inventory and what's bound to what, what it will do if you press it. So, I'm sure some smartass decided to do it just like that, just for the funny, and I'm glad they did. Overall, again, love the Nintendo 64 controller, love the Nintendo Switch Online service, really love the Switch overall, and that controller is sick. 10 out of 10, not a thing in the world I would change about it, except for maybe having different colors, but I have no reason to believe that that's not going to come out sometime, right? So the games I was playing on my Switch with this Nintendo 64 controller, right? I played a good amount of Banjo-Kazooie. Uh, for me, that's kind of a tough one, right? Because I love the game, super memorable, fantastic soundtrack. They did lots of really slick graphical things to pull off some tricks in shadows and reflections and stuff like that and the physics. I love Banjo-Kazooie. However, from the time I've been a child, I may have beaten the game like once. I usually make it roughly to... Uh, Mad Monster Mansion, I think is the name of that level. And that's when I either lose steam or lose motivation. Uh, coincidentally, that's just about exactly how far I made it on PC recently, when I was 100%ing the game, getting everything as I go through. And then I stopped playing it on PC because I got it on Switch. So as of today, I'm now just slightly past that, going into Rusty Bucket, something. You guys know what I'm talking about. It's everyone's least favorite Banjo-Kazooie map in the entire, like, series. But yeah, so that worked pretty well. Uh, it was a little adjustment getting used to the analog stick feel and stuff like that. But overall, it still made the game more enjoyable. You know, it just felt even more intuitive and made more sense. It's also my favorite collectathon. Like, the charm, the design, the everything about it. Like, you could show me screenshots from any of those maps or just play the soundtrack, and it, it takes my entire brain all the way back, all the senses. I know exactly where I am, what's happening, where the jiggies are. Man, Banjo-Kazooie's great. Hot take, Banjo-Kazooie is better than Super Mario 64. I know, I know. Absolutely absurd. Biased and pandering, even. But my opinion, it's a better game. Just my opinion. 
Super Mario 64 is on up there, though. Don't get me wrong. I just really like Banjo and Kazooie. I feel like they have more of a British sense of humor. You know, it's a little bit dry, a little sarcastic. They definitely crank that up in Banjo-Tooie. If Super Mario 64 is so fucking good, why isn't there a Super Mario 65? I rest my case. So beyond the collectathons, I did play a little bit more some other stuff, right? I played Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask. My problem with those games right now is that I haven't dedicated time to my save files. I pretty much just got past the intro cutscenes and then saved so that I wouldn't have to mess with it. And and while that was effective for skipping the very intro cutscenes, I forgot how many more long cutscenes there are just by nature in the beginning of the game, right? Like, I loaded up Ocarina of Time, and I was inside the Great Deku Tree. I went through, did all that, fought the boss, and I was like, all right. And then I got hit with that, like, 10-minute cutscene where you're talking to the Great Deku Tree and watching Ganon and all of that. And I know the game so well that I know for a fact, next time I sit down to play it, I'm going to have to sneak into Hyrule Castle. I'm going to have to talk with Zelda and Sheik and more cutscenes and shit that I'm just not really excited about because I've seen it so many times. But that's nothing against the game, right? That's just me letting you know that that's why I didn't play the living shit out of Ocarina of Time or Majora's Mask, because I would love to. I just haven't had enough time to sit down and get past a lot of that slow start and really get into it. But what I did start and finish last night, took probably three or four hours, is Pokemon Snap. They recently added it to the Nintendo Online catalog, and I remember playing as a kid and thinking fondly of it, and I... I really enjoyed playing it last night. Like, I, I beat the entire game. I started, I was like, yeah, let me just get a quick little start. Just like Majora's Mask and Ocarina of Time. Let me just get out there. Do, like, stage one, right? No big deal. We'll do it nice and thorough. Get everything we can. And then we'll just leave it. We'll come back, right? Because I like to 100% games as I play through them, right? That's not what fucking happened. I sat there and manically played Pokemon Snap for like four or five hours and did not stop until I was done with the bonus level with Mew, right? And honestly, if there was more levels, I would have kept playing. I don't know that I could have snapped myself out of it. No pun intended. Pokemon Snap was a great time. If you never played it, eh, it's a little bit strange for the Pokemon path. You're essentially taking photos of things and Pokemon, and whatnot. And then later down the road, you get some interactables, right? Like, you can throw apples, which can either hit them, which may piss them off, it may knock them into something that forces an evolution, or they may just fall off a cliff and you hear their infernal screams until they die, right? It happens. But between the apples, the pester balls, which just piss them off and make them come out of hiding... The flute, which makes them do rare things like Pikachu striking lightning. And then combinations of puzzles like luring a Pikachu over to this egg, making it strike lightning. And then, boom, legendary Pokemon Zapdos or whatever comes out. Try to get a picture of that. And your pictures are graded. There's there's a lot going on 
right? But overtly, there's no wrong way to play it. But there is a right way to play it. And that's what's interesting. Made it super fun for me. Some other games that I want to come to the Switch Online service for the Nintendo 64 specifically. Just speaking for myself, right? These aren't everyone's favorite games. I know everybody loves Perfect Dark and Jet Force Gemini. I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying if I had a, like, top five, none of those first-person shooters are ever going to make it. There has never and will never be a first-person shooter I want to play on Nintendo 64. Right? Just full stop. There's not. They're not good. The best argument you could make is like 007 Goldeneye. And it's not good. It's not fun. That's a game where I think the nostalgia takes over, right? Playing split screen with your friends and the Golden Gun stuff. That was all sick. But playing the game in and of itself, playing through the campaign, is not going to be a good time. It's a clunky nuisance, right? That's just not what the Nintendo 64 did well, right? That's not what it's for. And I can live with that. If I can accept that, you should be able to accept that as well. So the games I'm looking forward to, I would say Donkey Kong 64, another platforming collect-a-thon. Most people don't like it, at least retrospectively. Back in the day, it was pretty well received, if I remember correctly. But nowadays, people think it's really padded out and too contrived because you have to keep switching characters and going through different paths on the same levels like five times if you actually want to get 100%. Valid. But the game starts with a rap, right? DK, Donkey Kong. He's the leader of the bunch. You know him well. He's finally back to kick some tail. His coconut gun, it fires in spurts. And if he shoots you, it's gonna hurt. Donkey Kong 64 has to come back for that alone. Banjo-Tooie, the much darker and more mature take on Banjo-Kazooie. They kind of did some stuff better. They kind of didn't. You know, that's a hot topic. I really like Banjo-Tooie. And if for nothing else, I would like to see it come out just because I've already played through Banjo-Kazooie so many times. I haven't really given Banjo-Tooie that same treatment. So that would be fun for me. Pokemon Stadium, right? Because you know what's better than taking pictures of fucking Pokemon? Or walking through fields, fighting Pokemon? Going to the fucking arena. You're going to step into the stadium with me? You're going to pull your little Charmander on me? Your little Pikachu? Your little Butterfree? Crowd with tens of thousands of people in attendance? All of this collateral damage waiting to happen and you choose to put me in a self-defense situation? You provoked me. You remember that. So moving on with the list. Rayman 2, The Great Escape. My personal favorite Rayman game. Um, I don't know how the community or the world feels about it at large, but that one always really stuck with me. That was the first Rayman game I played, and after playing that, going into the other ones was really jarring for me, because Rayman 2 has these really dark overtones, right? Like, immediately, right off the rip. There's, like, ghostly skeleton slave ships, and, like, forced labor, and all kinds of fucked up shit. And the game itself was interesting and difficult, at least later on. 
right? So I'm a big fan of Rayman 2, and I would absolutely 100% that if it came to the Switch, no doubt. Conquer's Bad Fur Day. I'm not, it's not personally one of my favorites. Uh, I get the novelty of it, and there might be some genuinely good game mechanics behind it. The reason I want that to come out is so I can play it through properly, right? I never did it before. I never cared enough to really do it. But now that I have a Nintendo console and a Nintendo 64 controller, I would definitely love to revisit that game and really see what it did, right? See what it did right, wrong, in the middle. I just like to experience games, good, bad, or indifferent. It's it's the journey, not the destination, right? And Diddy Kong Racing. Diddy Kong Racing, I have tough, I have mixed feelings about it because on one hand, uh, I love it. It's my favorite kart racer, probably. On the other hand, playing through the campaign seriously gets incredibly repetitious for me, right? Because it's like you go through, you get all the stuff, you did that, woo. Now go through, get all the coins, you did that, woo. You beat the whole game, all right. Now go through, get all the, you did that, woo. You play the game like six fucking times over. So even if it was super easy, which it's not, and you were able to just kind of meta your way through and come in first every time you did something, you would still have to play each map multiple times to continue progressing throughout the game. So I would love to just jump on and have some fun with Diddy Kong Racing, but I wouldn't give it the same attention that I would give to like Rayman or Banjo-Kazooie or even Conker's Bad Fur Day, personally. We'll return after these messages. You know what the single scariest reality of this world is? I would say easily 90 plus percent of people refuse to acknowledge this. They can't. They would self-destruct. They would have meltdowns. They would literally have conniption fits. Like, you know, every now and then you'll see a kid with special needs in like the parking lot, just like thrashing himself against the fucking ground, you know, cutting himself up and shit. And his handler or parent or whoever's with him is like, oh, no, he's fine. He's just kicking it out. Maybe that hasn't happened to everyone, but that's happened to me. And that's a that's an experience, right? You see shit like that happening. Well, the point the reason I'm explaining that is because that is, by definition, a conniption fit, right? That's what people would do if they recognized the truth of the situation, right? And I'm not gonna clickbait you. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna pull your chain, so to speak. I'm gonna go ahead and tell you what it is. So, my opinion: the scariest truth in the world is that, generally speaking, we get what we deserve. Right? Just stop and think about that for a second. That's rough. And I'll say tragedies occur, right? There are tragedies born of malice and evil, right? You can think of that Austrian painter. That would be an example of malice and evil. 
And then there's tragedy that is not born of that. It's just the nature of nature, right? Still tragic, still still a shame, still can create unfair situations where people suffer hardships that they don't deserve, right? So let's say you get raped by bears and eaten by tigers, right? That's obviously tragic and terrible, but the bear or the tiger is not evil, right? It's not malicious. It's not doing that because it wants your suffering. It's doing that because that's what it is, right? Earthquakes and tsunamis are not evil or malicious, but they can still cause tragedy and be tragic in their existence, right? So excluding tragedy, we get what we deserve, right? There's a billion different points where something could cut your life short or something profoundly tragic could happen to you, whether it's an airplane falling out of the sky and just so happening to land wherever you are right now, some some crazy retard going into school with a gun, right? There's a billion different things. Even just workplace accidents, hit by cars on the way to work, all kinds of shit, right? We don't need to go down the list. You can you're you're creative people. You can let that one marinate and come to your own conclusions on how well that holds up. But let's assume you don't die right? Nothing bad does happen. Now what do you have? You have the consequences of your actions and thoughts. Every thought manipulates action, even if it's just in a influential sense, right? Like it's impossible to separate thoughts from actions entirely, because even if you don't act out what you think, or, you know, how you broke down something in your head isn't conducive with how you dealt with it, right? The influence is intangible. It's never going to be removed from it. So your little thoughts manipulate your actions and your actions create a ripple of consequence in the form of acute reactions as well as influencing the perception other people have of you and the perception you have of yourself, right? Which is a very big thing. Other people's perception of you will do a lot if you take, if you think of it in terms of opportunities, right? And how people treat you, what doors are open for you. But how you think of yourself influences absolutely every single thing, right? both internal, external, everything. I mean, across the board. You could throw out all of the careful talking and tightrope walking of the complexities of the human brain and consciousness that we've been having, right? You could just paint over that whole fucking thing. If you have negative thoughts of yourself, that's going to manifest itself in every single aspect of your life, right? So being negative or hateful, malicious cowardly even, right, will come back upon you. Doesn't mean that something tragic's going to happen or something super bad's going to happen. This is all on a spectrum, right? But regardless, being hardworking 
honest, stoic, and dependable, right? Holding your word, being accountable will provide opportunity to you by the same token that being an asshole or being negative will take opportunity away from you. I guess in a more... I guess in a more scientific sense, either way, you're gaining opportunity. It's just one set of opportunities will, we could agree, would remote in positive outcomes, right? Like getting a better job, being more competent, getting a certification or something, being better equipped to proceed with your life, no matter how abstract that value is, right? Because on one hand, a bachelor's degree is valuable, right? But on the other hand, building a business from the ground up and networking and having that kind of confidence and belief in yourself that you know you can do it because you've already done it, that's a more abstract form of value, right? So regardless, the things that will come to you in life, in the form of people, in friendships, in opportunities is going to be a reflection of how you have been carrying yourself and what you have chosen to do with your time, thoughts, and abilities. At the end of the day, we get what we deserve. And this just isn't at the polls on the absolutes, right? We're the best, nicest, hardest working people who don't, who are fortunate enough to not uh, be victim of some sort of tragic circumstances do great in life and are successful, right? We tell ourselves that doesn't happen because it makes us think about why we're not on that path, but that does happen. That's a real thing. And just on the other side, we all know this happens. People who do really stupid shit, make really poor choices, aren't accountable for anything, no responsibility. They treat life as if it's nihilistic. You know, they don't care about anything. We know that that's a solution to being worthless right but the real fear should come from the median in my opinion right the person who is willing to maybe just work retail right for six years because it's comfortable enough they they don't have whether they haven't developed the ambition or the work ethic or no matter what, no matter what the explanation is for why they chose to work retail for 20 plus years, right? They are going to get the outcome they deserve. So I want you to, what I want to make sure that you take from this is that if you are not improving yourself, if you are not going out of your way to confront the unknown, and face the difficult, things are going to get worse, right? For human beings, where they're at in the world really is insignificant psychologically, right? But the trajectory they perceive is huge. Please stand by for further details. We return you now to your regularly scheduled program. You know, something I think is really weird is that Collectathon platformers are like water, you know? We have the recipe, but we can't do it, right? Hydrogen dioxide, H2O, right? 
we we know we there are numerous video essays and papers on you know Super Mario sixty four, uh, Banjo Kazooie, Spyro, Gex, right? Some of the most prolific titles and franchises in the history of gaming, right? But we can't create a new one. How the fuck does that work, man? Why? I'm going to be honest, I've heard fantastic things about Hat in Time. I have not played it. I'm still trying to get caught up on all of the other games that I thought were supposed to be very good platformers and collectathons. Um, no shade at Nintendo. Obviously, I'm a fan, but I'm like two or three worlds into Mario Odyssey, and I'm just not enjoying it. It's not that I ever had a bad time with it, but at best, it was enjoyable. It never sucked me in. I never, like, thought about wanting to go play it. And I think a lot of that for me is the pacing of how things work out, right? Like, the star system kind of confuses me. I've been trying to 100% the game, but it seems like I can't do that on my first playthrough. So now I'm kind of demotivated to keep trying to do stuff because I can't do it, right? So I'll keep playing it. I'll, I'll fuck around with some other... Uh, you know, platformers, the other Mario games I've heard good things about, like Galaxy I never played. I don't even think I played, was it Super Mario Sunshine? The one where he has the water jet cannon? I didn't play them. You know, I didn't have them. If I, w- I wanted to. But regardless, I think even if you have played Mario Odyssey and A Hat in Time, and you think those are great games, if you were also playing the original platformer collectathons, then you should know that the genre as a whole is very weak. You know, like the boomer shooter retro FPS category has way stronger lineup than platformers. That really sucks for me because those are easily some of my favorite games, period. I love them. So much love for Spyro and Crash Bandicoot. And I, I'm hopeful that one day someone will remake Gex. Because I'll play that. And I have been playing some other stuff, you know, back on the PC. It hasn't just been all Nintendo. Uh, the Cycle Frontier. Uh, lovingly called Space Tarkov pretty regularly. That's a great game. It's it's full loot drop, right? So you... You get your gear, you take missions and quests, you go into the map, you loot lots of stuff. But unlike a battle royale, you're not, you're hardly looting weapons and things like that. On occasion, you'll find some, right? And maybe locked loot rooms do have weapons chests and stuff like that with better guns in them. But largely, the only time you're looting guns and ammo is after you've killed another player. And the reason that distinction is important is because I find Battle Royales to be extremely bland and uninspiring because your only objective is to survive. So the looting in and of itself also gets very repetitive once you understand the game and its mechanics. About the time you're in a position to be competently good at the game, for me, it's all of a sudden not fun anymore, right? So what Tarkov addresses, and by extension the cycle, Frontier is addressing in that situation is you have missions and objectives and rewards and stimulation outside of the match in and of itself, right? Which would be called a raid. 
instead of like a match like you would in Warzone or something. You're going in and you're going to specific areas looking for specific things that you're either going to mine or go through filing cabinets to get, right? Medical crates, all kinds of different stuff. So then when you think about the the skill tree and crafting aspect of the game, which takes place out of raid, right? Where you're just chilling. You're basically in a hub world just working on your other stuff. It creates a really interesting, compelling experience that, to me, is way more fun than any Battle Royale. Um, Whether I'm playing solo or in a group, you know, I love raiding with friends. I like raiding by myself because I can really hone in on doing missions and being selfish in that regard. And it's just super fun. You know, it's a breath of fresh air and the game is free, so definitely check it out. I don't know that it's anywhere but PC right now, but I'm sure that it will be. Uh, It doesn't have the craziest graphics or anything, and it's missing a little bit of polish, right? But the gameplay itself is good, and it's there. But uh, forewarning, the game has a lot of negative reviews, and they're all written by troglodytes, right? People complaining about being a solo versus duos or trios, that's life. That's what happens. Quit focusing on whether or not the match is fair and focus on winning the match. Right. Like I said, this is not Battle Royale where only one person can survive. You can leave the map whenever you want. Multiple people can call multiple evac ships multiple times over the course of like 40 minutes. Like no sympathy for that. You don't have to fight people in a sense really at all until much later in the game. And then people just expecting it to be like Apex or, you know, more like a traditional battle royale opposed to what it really is, which is a knockoff of Tarkov. It's a simplified, way shorter, sweeter, faster version of Tarkov. And I enjoy it. Also on the PC, I've been playing Turbo Overkill. Uh, I would give that one kind of a mixed review, right? Because it's fun. It's fast. I really enjoy the environment and the world building. The enemies are kind of shitty in my opinion, right? Like, they're not awful, but they're not great. Everything's just a little bit spongy and eh for my liking. But the game itself is definitely interesting, right? It's a retro shooter taking place in a cyberpunk dystopian future. You have a chainsaw on your leg. You can slide around the map, like, indefinitely. I... The game, the gameplay loop just doesn't quite come together in the way that I want it to. And I think that's my main problem. Like, it's very fast and very flicky, and I love fast, flicky games, right? You know, your Dooms, Quakes, uh, arena shooters in general. I love that kind of thing, but for some reason, maybe it's netcode related, or maybe it's the engine of the game. I can't put my finger on it, but something about that game feels off. Right? Maybe it's the balance on guns or the spread on weapons. There's something that does not reward competent play enough. Like, if you choose to, you can go out of your way and do a bunch of cool stuff, but the game doesn't really help you do that, and the weapons can't be comboed 
in a way that's efficient. So it's harder to get high damage output numbers. So what you're left with is more like an original FPS, like say similar to playing Duke Nukem, right? Where it's more of use the weapons you have, but you're not comboing them, right? It's not Shadow Warrior 3 or Doom Eternal where it's comboed. It's more just use what you have with really, really almost vomit-inducing fast pace and a lack of reason. Like, you can go fast. The chainsaw leg's pretty cool. You can get health or armor from it, but it's just the gameplay itself and the combat loop does not create an environment where it typically behooves you to go balls to the walls as hard and fast as you can chainsawing through a crowd of people. Most of the time, that's going to get you killed. Like, once you're past the first few levels, you're going to hit something really big that you stop on, and it's going to be a whole thing. So, a, a really good swing from Apogee Games. You know, they've been out of the picture for a long time, as far as I am aware. But the game is not 10 out of 10. It's not a masterpiece. It's fun. And I don't remember how much it costs. If it's less than $30, I would say it's probably worth the money. If it's 15 or less, I would say definitely worth the money. But honestly, it's it's not... It feels like it wants to be Ultra Kill. But it doesn't do Ultra Kill nearly as well as Ultra Kill. But to make up for that, they made a much cooler environment than Ultra Kills, in my opinion, because you do have this nice dystopian cyberpunk thing going on. And I actually like how they intro and outro the levels and how all of the cutscenes and fun little interactions work. I just don't think the combat loop is what they nailed. I think in this genre of game, that's the one thing everyone cares most about. So... Turbo Overkill is all right. I'd give it like a 6 out of 10, maybe a 7. But honestly, that's on the generous side. I've been playing the living fuck out of the Switch remake of Link's Awakening, though. God, that game is so good. For me, it's the first 2D Zelda game I've played. And I'm so in love with it, man. It's so, so fucking good. Everything is so tight. It plays so well. Everything's so thought out. It's not the longest game in the world, and it's not. it doesn't have the most expanded upon ideas, but everything it does is such a 10 out of 10. really a joy to play that. I'm a big fan of it. I've been on a massive Zelda kick recently, and I'm 99% positive that before this weekend is over, I will be done with 100%ing Link's Awakening. Oh, I have very positive feelings about it. And then I'll move to Skyward Sword, because I didn't get to play that. Fingers crossed that they remaster or remake Twilight Princess at some point. Preferably within the next year, right? I'd love to play that. I did play that one on PC right after I got my PC. And, uh... You know, download some HD textures and stuff, and it looked like Skyrim. The game was great. I was really enjoying it. So it'd be awesome to get to experience that natively remastered on the original hardware. And uh, who knows? Maybe 
Maybe they'll sell a, a remastered GameCube controller and I'll buy that one too. I hate to say it, but if there are two controllers that I would spend $100 to get that I can't even use on my computer, 2022, Nintendo 64, which I already did, and GameCube. If they remade a GameCube controller, I would buy it. That's all I'm saying. And with that being said, that wraps up our talk for the day. And with that being said, that wraps up our talk for the day. I appreciate you fucking with your boy. So that, that wraps us up. That's all I got for you today. I appreciate you coming by. New episodes every Monday. Don't forget to... Uh... Ah, fuck, man. I don't know. Wheel kick single mothers when you see them walking down the street. Who's got-